Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. You can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. I want you to know this morning, though, that, that we would love to have you come join us in person Sundays at 10.30 a.m. or Sunday nights at 6 p.m. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it is my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The story is told that a disgruntled early American once asked Benjamin Franklin, so where is all this happiness that the Declaration of Independence says is my right? Franklin is said to have responded, You have a right to the pursuit of happiness. You have to catch it yourself. Over the last few weeks, we've been discussing biblical contentment. Uh, We've talked about how God always supplies so we can be content to give to others. We've talked about the importance of knowing how to be content with little or much in good times and bad. Last week, we looked at the significance of God's promise to always be with us and how that should affect our contentment. Today, we want to see how contentment isn't something we passively acquire. We have to actively pursue it. God doesn't just make Christians content. He gives us every opportunity to be content, though. He has afforded us the right to be content and called us to be content, but it's something we have to intentionally pursue. As Mr. Franklin said, you have to catch it yourself. This morning, I want to bring you a message from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, called Content, a Pursuit Situation. In addition to looking at how we pursue contentment, we're going to look at why contentment is worth pursuing. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and follow along with me as I read verses 6 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes these words. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So right out of the gate here, we have our first lesson practically jumping off the pages of our Bibles. The first thing we see in this passage and cannot ignore is the significance of contentment. The significance of contentment. We know that being content is a significant thing. We know that there is value to being uh, content, but can we quantify the value of contentment? Can we say how significant contentment is? 
Well, in a sense, that is what the Apostle Paul does for us in in this text that we just read this morning. Paul wrote in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, just before Paul wrote these words, you need to know that he was warning Timothy about how there are some men out there who just want to preach and teach for the money. They see it as a way to be taken care of by the church or the religious community at large. They think this form of godliness is a means of gain. Paul's talking about financial gain here. They want money. They want to get some material thing out of it. That's how they're looking at it. So then Paul says that godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So now, at this point, Paul is not talking about financial gain. He's not talking about money right here. No, he's talking about something far more valuable than the fleeting and perishing wealth of this world. We know that Paul's not talking about material wealth here because, first of all, Scripture does not teach us that a holy life is the way to a wealthy life. And secondly, if contentment is involved, and it is, Paul says so, then we know that Paul is not talking about pursuing money because being content is not loving money. We talked about that last week. And thirdly, Paul says that some of these bad preachers thought godliness was a means of gain. And then in verse 6, Paul says there is a way where godliness can be a means of great gain. This seems to show that the gain Paul's talking about here is better or greater than the financial gain that he was just talking about in verse 5. So it's a different kind of gain. So how does this help us, though, to, to assess the value or the significance of contentment? Well, godliness is a means of great gain, a very special spiritual gain, when accompanied by contentment when accompanied by contentment. In a very real sense, religiousness without contentment is worthless. The significance of contentment is that it is necessary to make godliness valuable. The significance of contentment is that it is necessary, required, to make godliness of any value at all. If the gain that Paul's talking about here is spiritual in nature, if he's referring to treasures stored up in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal, if he's talking about the righteousness credited to us by God himself rather than cold hard cash, and I believe it's clear that he is, then what good is some form of godliness without contentment? If you don't get any of this without contentment, then what good is it? Paul says godliness is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. My guess is that your primary purpose for becoming a Christian was a spiritual one. I would assume that what you hoped to gain from becoming a Christian was spiritual in nature. Now, sure, maybe you hoped that becoming a Christian would help your life out in other ways, maybe cause your family to be more stable, maybe you'd even learn to make better financial decisions and things like this, but, but I can only assume that your greatest desire was to have God wash your sins away and clothe you with the righteousness of his son Jesus so that you could have eternal life. Here's the significance of contentment. You could stand before a church and say that you want to give your life to Jesus. You could be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You could attend every assembly this church has, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and anything in between. But if you're not content with what God has given you, if it's just not enough for you, and you become fixated on money and getting stuff, assuming that is where happiness comes from, then your form of godliness 
is worthless. Contentment makes all the difference. We were never created for stuff. Stuff was created for us, for our use and our management. But stuff was never supposed to drive us or control us or own us. After Paul said that godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, he went on to write in verse 7 of our text, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Now, on the surface, this statement sounds a lot like Job's statement in Job 121, where he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. But the context of Paul's words here in 1 Timothy 6 are what make the difference. Okay, the two statements are very similar, and they, they really do kind of say the same thing, but the meaning is different because the purpose or the context is different. Paul's purpose is not, uh, oh, well, I guess you can't keep it anyway. It's a true statement, but Paul's purpose is to encourage us in being content so that we can have the great gain of godliness, those spiritual treasures. We've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. In this context, this is Paul saying, the stuff that we have in this life was given to us in this life for use in this life and only in this life. And that's why Paul follows this statement in verse 8 with these words. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. The emphasis of our life must not be on the things of this life. Where we're going is far more important. Preparing for our eternal life needs to be our critical focus. Colossians 3 verse 2 tells us, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. As we set our minds on what is spiritually significant, we can be content with just the necessities. Food, enough to get food, you know, enough money to get food, whether it's in a a market at a grocery store, a garden, raising livestock or hunting for it, enough money to to purchase or to make clothing, enough money to, to buy or make some kind of shelter, cabin, trailer, ranch house, shed, it doesn't matter. You see, Paul's focus is on the eternal, that great gain that he was talking about, so that rather than necessarily looking at possessions as worthless, or on the flip side, as something that we should obsess over, Paul wants us instead to to truly understand their their real value, their their real purpose. They're just supplies for us to use while we're here on earth. So if we have enough to survive, if we have what we need, with these we shall be content. Remember, godliness is only a means of great gain, the great gain that Paul's been talking about here, when accompanied by contentment. Now, knowing the significance of contentment, doesn't this seem like something worth pursuing? The second lesson that we learn from our passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the detriments of discontentment. The detriments of discontentment. Paul enumerates the detriments of discontentment in verses 9 and 10. Should we find ourselves driven by a desire to be wealthy, a love of money, a craving for the stuff of this world, we will not escape the negative consequences. In fact, you may have experienced them already, or you might even be experiencing them right now. Paul says in verse 9 of our text, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. You see, those who want to get rich, as Paul says, they are always discontented. Whether you've got wealth now and you want more, or if you've got nothing right now, but you're just dying to fill up that bank account. When you're bent on getting more cash, when that has your focus and your attention, you've opened yourself up to a a whole world of dangers. And that is not an overstatement. You have opened yourself up to a whole new world of dangers. When you allow wealth to attract you, 
You allow wealth to tempt you. Paul says those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Now, as a general rule, temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus himself was tempted in all the ways that we are, yet was without sin, the scriptures say. However, when we're intentionally placing ourselves into tempting situations again and again, then we're sinning and we're playing with fire, fire now and fire to come. Situations in life that offer a get-rich-quick kind of benefit are often like a trap. That's another way that Paul put it here. He, he said those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. By the way, a, a snare, that, that's a kind of trap designed to catch animals by tricking them into ignoring present danger for the chance at something that'll taste good for a few seconds. So much of the world around us is trotting down the path, sniffing out their riches, only to have the snare snap down on them. And the pain that it creates is, is like nothing they ever expected. They never thought they'd be outsmarted. They never thought they'd be overtaken by their love for money. And they never thought the snare would hurt as bad as it does. Paul also says in this verse that those who want to get rich face some additional detriments. Gareth Reese says the desire to be rich never walks alone. One kind of craving leads to another. You know, that's one of those common sense truths that sort of gets ignored or overlooked when you're the one craving something that you shouldn't. But it doesn't change the fact that it's true. When you crave any single passing pleasure of this world, it's pretty clear that you're in the state of mind to be tempted by several others. Paul calls it many foolish and harmful desires. And he rightly says that these foolish and harmful desires plunge men into ruin and destruction. The word that Paul used for plunge in this case means to plunge into the deep, to sink, and it implies drowning. And I believe that Paul's word choice is intentional. When you let discontentment take hold in your life, you set yourself up for temptation, you start walking down a path filled with snares, and you start doing very foolish and harmful things until you begin to drown in it all. In verse 10, he said, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's so incredibly dangerous. As I mentioned last week when we looked at this verse here very briefly, there are real Christians who really wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul has not been talking about things that irreligious people do. He's talking to and about religious people here, people who are attracted by religion, drawn to it, get involved in it, but they haven't given up their attraction to and relationship with the riches and pleasures of this world. It's a recipe for plunging oneself into ruin and destruction. Ruin now, not only your own life, but the lives of those around you, and destruction later, eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, consigned to the lake of fire forever. That certainly sounds like someone who has pierced themselves with many griefs. Put simply, the dangers of discontentment can be as dangerous as dangers get. You could end up separated from the Savior, living a miserable life filled with pain now and then spend eternity in hell forever. So we need to shift our focus toward a pursuit a pursuit of what is good and holy and has a positive eternal effect, a positive eternal impact. That's the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of righteousness. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 
Paul says uh, first to flee these things, these things, flee the discontentment that brings about all of these things that, that we just discussed, these things that plunge men into ruin and destruction, flee these things. You know, sometimes you have to flee certain things to be able to pursue others. You got to flee certain friends sometimes to pursue more godly relationships. Flee certain plans to pursue more worthwhile endeavors. Flee certain habits to become more productive in Christ. And of course, you need to flee sin to pursue righteousness in Christ. Paul gives a list of things that Christians should pursue. He says, you man of God, referring to Timothy specifically, of course, but the things that he lists are things that all Christians should pursue rather than a discontented life of money love. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That's the list. So first of all, we need to pursue righteousness. Now, there's a righteousness that is a right standing with God, which has to be credited by God to us. And then there's a righteousness that refers to literally doing that which is right. That's the righteousness that Paul is undoubtedly uh, talking about here, that he's telling Timothy to pursue here. Flee the wrong kind of behavior that plunges you into ruin and destruction and pursue the right kind of behavior that places you squarely in the will of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Pursue righteousness. And then he says, pursue godliness. Now, contrary to popular belief, godliness is not exactly being like God. That's holiness, actually. The, the Bible says, God says, be holy for I am holy. Godliness, though, is living with our attention focused on God in reverence. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul wrote to Timothy, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see, living with our minds reverently focused on God will lead us onto the right path for this life and on into eternal life with God himself. Pursue godliness and pursue faith. That's the next thing on the list. Pursue faith. In Romans chapter 9, verse 32, the answer for why Israel didn't keep the law in a way that pleased God is given like this. It says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Now, did they have some faith? Yeah, of course they did. But did that motivate them? Did they live by faith? Did they keep the law by faith? Or was it ritual? Was it a focus on being born into it? Did Timothy have faith? Of course, Timothy had faith. Paul is exhorting him in our text here to actively live out his faith. That's what the Israelites didn't do and didn't please God by doing. Paul is exhorting Timothy to respond to what life throws at him in faith, to obey God's commands in faith, to lead the church in faith. We might say it more simply, walk by faith. That's what we need to do, pursue faith. And then he says, pursue love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 says, But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. When someone asks Jesus what the greatest command was, Jesus said in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, everything that a lover and follower of God is called to do 
depends on love. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, that we were called to freedom in Christ so that through love, we would serve one another. Pursue love. And then he says, pursue perseverance. Pursue perseverance. Now, in the context of Christianity, perseverance is sticking close to Christ and being faithful when situations in life are working against you. Now, this can be much harder than a black and white definition makes it sound. You have to decide before you face trials that you are going to persevere. You are not going to give up. And the more and more you persevere through trials, the stronger your perseverance becomes. You see, your perseverance is your ability to persevere. In Revelation chapter 2, in the complimentary portion of Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 3, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Jesus is complimenting them on their perseverance, the same kind of perseverance that Paul says to pursue in 1 Timothy 6, 11. Jesus, in fact, used the same word as Paul there. Pursue perseverance. And then he says, pursue gentleness. Now, you need to know that gentleness is not being weak. Gentleness is not being a pushover. Gentleness is being humble and meek and approachable. Gentleness is keeping your strength, your power, your words, and your actions under control. It's the Christian who is slow to speak, slow to become angry. He doesn't mutter smart remarks under his breath. He doesn't speak harshly to or about others. He knows what is right and wrong, but his methods to expose and correct are controlled and strategic and tactful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul writes to Timothy the evangelist and says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, listen to this, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see how gentleness can have an eternal impact here? Practice gentleness, knowing that perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, someone's eternal standing with God can very well rest on your decision to practice gentleness or not. So, (laughs) pursue gentleness. It's the pursuit of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness that keeps us free from the detriments of discontentment. And it's this kind of life focused on what really matters, that which is spiritual and eternal, that enables us to be content so that we can reap those great gains that Paul spoke of earlier. Remember, contentment doesn't just happen. God has made it abundantly available, but it must be pursued. It's up to you to catch it. As we finish things up here today, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now the most important question that any of us could ever be asked. It's a question that each and every single one of us needs to be able to answer honestly. Here's the question. If the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts, that you'd go to live with him forever? I mean, do you know for certain that he's going to let you into heaven? Can a person even know? In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John writes that we can know. 
He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, Scripture says that there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to get in trouble when Jesus returns. Somebody's going to pay. Now, who did this passage of scripture say was going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed here. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you know God, but have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel. Now, before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is obviously the power of God for salvation, but, but what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he's going to tell us what that gospel is, what that message is. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, Let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? Well, I want to read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, did you catch that? When we are baptized, the Bible says we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead, so that we too will walk in newness of life. Now, before we can obey the gospel, we must believe the gospel. We must believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did for us. We need to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. The Bible says that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who would come to save us from our sins. He is the son of the living God. He himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. And he is God the son who came to earth in human 
form. We must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism, where we are immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is where we are baptized into Christ's death, into his burial, and raised up to newness of life by the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from death. And Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Acts chapter 22, verse 16, make it clear that at our baptism, our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3, verse 21 says, baptism saves us. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 teaches us that through faith and as a result of our baptism, we become children of God, clothed with Christ. Let me ask you again, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure no doubts that you would go to live with him forever. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions that you have, but we would sincerely appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, just keep listening and we'll tell you in just a moment how you can get in touch with us. You've just listened to the current sermon from Liberty Christian Church, the very same sermon that you would have heard today in person at Liberty. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m., and I'd love to encourage you to come to both services. Our address is 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana, and if you'd like to call us, just call 812-273-1518. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that directly from our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Remember, we love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth. Mm -hmm.